Hi. I just wanted to say we didn't mean to be away so long. We had a busy time at work, and then we had a death in the family. I don't like to leave the show for so long. The way we work, the components of the show are ideas like a handful of loose threads that we try to tie together into some chaotic web. A web that might have been made by a brain-damaged spider. But imagine that spider is inarticulate, but with a strong sense of audio perfection. The perfect audio never really materializes. I record way more than I use and patch in, almost seamlessly, tons of corrections to mistakes in my delivery, mistakes I hear I make in the English language, and sometimes I don't feel confident in the things I state as facts. My point is, it's a miracle any of these shows are finished. But during this point, with the Rotcast family life in so much turmoil, this was the first time where I actually doubted my resolve to keep recording. But I will go on. We want to change up the format again just a little bit. I listened to a show called How Did This Get Made? It's a very amusing show made by professional comedians. How Did This Get Made's mini-shows introduce the upcoming film that they will be mocking, and it also serves as a place for them to answer any listener feedback. I want to copy the mini-show idea and give the answers to the last Rotcast quiz in the mini. Some of the quiz answers have been taking over the regular show, so hopefully this will be a good solution. This is the first of the mini answer shows. Before we answer the quiz, let's review the mystery film. Here's a clip. Try the wine. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Happy days. Won't you join me? No. My health doesn't allow it. No, thank you. Uh. <clears throat> ah. 1960 Chateau. Saint-Estef. Medoc. Very good brand, sir. Ah. Very good color, sir. Smells nice, too. Um. <laughs> Very nice little number, sir. Well, here's to it. Very refreshing, sir. Very refreshing. I'm pleased you appreciate good wine. Have another glass. Thank you, sir. 
and my brothers, it was real satisfaction to me to waltz left, two, three, right, two, three, and carve left cheeky and right cheeky so that like two curtains of blood seemed to pour out at the same time, one on either side of his fat, filthy, oily snout in the winter starlight. Thank you, number 11, for that dramatic rendition from the book that this mystery film was based on. Did you guess A Clockwork Orange? We start our discussion of A Clockwork Orange with the book and the author of the book. Anthony Burgess and the Teddy Boys Anthony Burgess completed a draft of A Clockwork Orange without droogs. Instead of placing the story in the future, he set it in modern day, which was then the start of the 1960s. The gangs of juvenile delinquents he based the story around were Teddy Boys. The Teddy Boys were English youths with money to spend, and they spent it on style. They adopted a retro way of dressing based on Edwardian fashion. They went in for dandified suit coats with lots of drape and velvet trim. They had them tailor-made. They wore tight drainpipe trousers. They enjoyed American rock music. Teds were rowdy hooligans. They carried concealed weapons like razors, knives, and chains. Burgess said, quote, This first version presented the world of adolescent violence and governmental retribution in the slang that was current at the time among the hooligan groups known as Teddy Boys and the Mods and Rockers, end quote. I was really interested in finding this slang, but there doesn't appear to be enough Teddy Boy slang to tell a full story in a first-person narrative as Clockwork Orange does. No future. A Clockwork Orange is set in the future, but I don't know how anyone would know this except for NADSAT, the made-up language spoken by the Droogs. There are no holograms or flying cars or laser weapons. There's very little attention paid to the setting of the story. It's a short book at only 164 pages. The author isn't interested in building a world with description. That might take too long and divert from the theme. New drugs, new manner of droog dress, and of course new brainwashing techniques, which might fit under the umbrella of new drugs, are mentioned. It's the NADSAT vocabulary, however, that gives the story a coating of the new and strange that in other science fiction futures might rely on visualization or an elaborate description of how things have evolved or devolved. I believe it was the author's interest in capturing a language or voice for these young toughs that ultimately changed the gang members from teddy boys to droogs. Burgess devised NADSAT from Russian and explained that the slang words had filtered into the English teenager's lexicon from years of Russian propaganda broadcasts. 
there isn't an explanation of why these broadcasts would be so influential. The point is, you can still see the teddy boy origin in the Droogs. Alex, the would-be gang leader, is extremely fashion conscious and vain, as well as ready for a fight or to destroy. Also, inside the story, we hear how Alex enjoys reading about gang violence in the newspapers, and during the Teddy Boy period in England, the press covered the Ted's exploits almost like sporting events. Facts about Anthony Burgess The author Anthony Burgess thought he was terminally ill with a brain tumor at the time he wrote Clockwork Orange, but it turned out to be a false alarm. He's best known for A Clockwork Orange, but he considered it one of his minor works. Here's a quote about the movie origins of A Clockwork Orange from Anthony Burgess. He said, quote, It was, I think, in 1965 that the rock group, known as the Rolling Stones, expressed an interest in the buying of the property and acting participation in a film version, which I myself should write. There was not much money in the project, because the permissive age in which crude sex and cruder violence could be frankly presented had not yet begun. If the film was to be made at all, it would have to be in a cheap underground version, leased out to clubs. End quote. The fictional story of A Clockwork Orange includes rape, and one home invasion and rape in particular. Burgess' wife was a real victim of rape, the perpetrators were a group of four U.S. Army deserters. This is a disgusting fact, and it makes one wonder why Burgess used it in a fictional story. I found it interesting that Burgess, at his death, was quite wealthy, a multimillionaire. He chose to live outside the U.K. to avoid paying a great deal of taxes. He moved around quite a lot and had real estate all over Europe. Burgess was fond of classical music and wrote musical compositions as well as literature. His protagonist in A Clockwork Orange, Alex DeLarge, is also a lover of classical music. There's no explanation of how Alex obtains his interest in classical music, only an explanation of how his violent imagination is engaged by a bombastic symphonic score. Let's talk about the director of Clockwork Orange, Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick may have hidden elaborate messages into his movies. There's at least one documentary that collects various theories that claim to decode riddles Kubrick placed into his adaptation of The Shining. The documentary is called Room 237. We're not going to give a full biography of Kubrick's life or a filmography of his work, but we might learn something from crackpot theories. As a young man, Kubrick took up the strategy game chess. He was competitive enough at the game to supplement his income playing for money. This might inform us how Kubrick liked to work developing his filmed stories. He would consider every move and its outcome. He enjoyed research while preparing the films he was obsessed by details. At his professional peak, he might have played at layering personal meaning underneath the adapted stories. His actors and production staff knew him as a perfectionist. 
Several accounts of how he demanded sets to be decorated range from the cute to the insane. For example, in the scene I described last episode, Malcolm McDowell, as Alex, walks through a record shop. This was a real location in London called the Chelsea Drugstore. When Alex waits at the shop counter, the soundtrack for Kubrick's film 2001 A Space Odyssey is plainly visible. That's cute. However, in another scene in Alex's parents' kitchen, a set that was constructed, not found, the art director on the film, John Barry, was told by Kubrick to stock the family's refrigerator. Barry was confused as no shot of the interior of the fridge was ever planned. That's a little bizarre. My own theory is that Kubrick wanted the option to improvise action using the fridge and just never did. This is really where I believe the idea of secret subtext originates. It's said that Kubrick enjoyed planning the films, but he once complained that photographing his films was the least interesting part of his job. To keep his sets interesting, he certainly engaged in improvising action with his actors. The addition of Alex's song and dance featuring Singing in the Rain during the home invasion scene is an example of this improvisation. The set decoration additions on a Kubrick film may also have livened up the editing process. Imagine you're a unit director, the person who shoots short but time-consuming bits of photography. These shots will be incorporated into the film in the editing room. When it comes to gathering the contents of a refrigerator, a shelf, or a desk, you might think this would be a great place to add a joke. Things that fly past a movie audience will be apparent when editing the film. We know Kubrick had a sense of humor because the visual and musical jokes he added overtly. Two good examples are the extensive zero-gravity toilet instructions encountered by a passenger flying to the space station in 2001. Another is the addition of the old World War II song, We'll Meet Again, on the soundtrack of Dr. Strangelove. This piece of music plays while the Earth is being destroyed by atom bombs. No one is ever going to meet anyone again. Let's talk about the adaptation of A Clockwork Orange. We must start at the end when discussing the film adaptation, because there are two versions of the novel. There's the American version with 20 chapters, and the rest of the world read 21 chapters. Kubrick used the shorter novel to create a script. I don't want to describe any more of the plot than I have to, but I do think I need to give a brief synopsis to point out the different versions. In A Clockwork Orange, Alex tells his own story of how he, as a psychopathic gang leader, is arrested for burglary and murder. He chooses to be brainwashed by government scientists in exchange for early release from prison. The scientists use adversion therapy on Alex to make him helplessly ill whenever he has an antisocial thought. An unintended byproduct of the conditioning creates the same debilitating illness when Alex hears music. Once he's released, the suffering he once inflicted on others is now visited upon him. 
He has no defense. He ends up severely beaten and homeless. Alex, coincidentally, seeks shelter in the home of a man he has committed great sins against. This man, coincidentally, is a member of a political group opposed to governmental brainwashing. The opposition group attempts to make Alex into a martyr. The group drives Alex to attempt suicide by forcing him to listen to music. Alex jumps out of a window to escape the music, but the scheme to discredit the government fails. Alex doesn't die. The government quickly resets Alex's brain back to evil and returns to him his free will. They also set him up with a cushy job. That's the American ending. <clears throat> In the original book, the 21st chapter describes how Alex surrounds himself with a new criminal gang but finds that brutal attacks, stealing, and rape do not make him happy anymore. He wants a wife, a child, and to settle down. It turns out he was just going through an awkward teenage patch. Kubrick said of this 21st chapter, or the original ending, quote, As far as I'm concerned, the original ending is unconvincing and inconsistent with the style and intent of the book. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that a publisher had somehow prevailed upon Burgess to tack on the extra chapter against his better judgment, so the book would end on a more positive note. I certainly never gave any serious consideration to using it." End quote. Kubrick's final shot of the film, however, may be a reference to that missing 21st chapter, albeit a quick and symbolic one. Alex realizes he's cured. He can listen to music and be blissfully transported as before. The government has wheeled in a huge sound system as a bribe to buy his complicity. Alex's eyes roll up as he begins imagining he's making love with a woman. It looks as if he and this woman were just married, but they became so overpowered by lust that they've stripped and started having sex in front of the wedding party. They lay writhing in slow motion on a bed of rice spread out over the ground. They're flanked by rows of gentlemen and ladies in formal dress. These are the well-wishers after the ceremony. The crowd applauds politely. One internet theorist interprets this scene as showing that Alex, like in the original ending of the book, has reformed. He's now thinking of only one sex partner whom he dreams of marrying. I tend to agree with this interpretation. I think Kubrick needed something to use for an ending, something visual and with shock value. He can't just fade to black while Alex lays motionless in a hospital bed listening to music. So Kubrick resorts again to a partially naked female, as he's done repeatedly throughout the film. In terms of a conventionally happy ending, it seems to show Alex's desire for sex is restored but he's never dreamt about the sex being approved of by society. This is closer in tone to the original book ending. Here's a short list of differences between the book and the film. Alex is conditioned against all music in the book, but in the film adaptation, he's only conditioned against Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Alex is conditioned against rape in the book, but he's conditioned against all sex in the film. The scene of Alex being regimentally introduced to prison is not in the book, 
but the book does have a section where Alex commits another murder while in a crowded prison cell. This is not used in the movie. In the book, Billy Boy and Dim, Billy being a former gang rival, become policemen and give Alex a beating. In the film, it's Georgie and Dim, both former members of Alex's gang, who become police, and their beating of Alex includes almost drowning him in a trough. Georgie, on the other hand, is reported in the book to have died. In the book, Alex isn't drugged by the writer as he is in the film. In the book, the writer is not physically crippled at the end of the story, and he doesn't have a bodyguard. The movie dialogue is very faithful to the book. The small subtractions and substitutions Kubrick made are mainly to keep the movie shorter and focused. His additions are choices of style and exaggeration. The look of the story is all Kubrick. It's accomplished cheaply through garish pop art interiors, costuming, and real live landmark architecture that had a futuristic aesthetic. Roger Ebert, the late movie critic, hated the film. He believed it glorified an evil character. He said, quote, Kubrick has used visuals to alter the book's point of view and to nudge us towards a kind of grudging palship with Alex. Kubrick uses the wide-angle lens almost all the time when he's showing events from Alex's point of view. This encourages us to see the world as Alex does, as a crazy house of weird people out to get him. So a visual impression is built up during the movie that Alex and only Alex is normal." Unquote. I've always enjoyed both the film and novella of A Clockwork Orange. I think I appreciate it even more now. But it's odd that the story about a rapey psycho is part of my library. The notion that the film desensitizes one to violence and makes Alex something of a winner would be hard to dispute. Here's another oddity. You've heard number nine, my sister, on the podcast before. There's a great difference in our ages. We have the same mother, but we were raised in different families. I was surprised to learn that we both had chosen to go out on Halloween as young adults as characters from A Clockwork Orange. As I said, this happened years apart and we were both unaware of the fact that the other had done this until recently. I found this really interesting. She unfortunately can't be on the show this time, but I asked her to describe the circumstances around her Halloween costume and she emailed me this. Hi Rotwang. I had seen the movie before I chose the costume, however the first time I tried to watch it I was in high school and I couldn't get through it because of the rape scene. It was too intense. When they took scissors to the red-orange leotard, I turned it off. My embrace of feminism was in its infancy then and I think I saw the violence and sexual abuse from a point of view that was too literal and sensitive. It was obscene. I did watch it in its entirety a year later, and I've seen it several times since then. Although I do enjoy the aesthetic of clockwork, the color, bold shapes, space, etc., and themes like violence, sex, technology, I like the book more. In fact, the book probably prepared me more than anything to give the movie a second try. I like the language, Nadsat, as you may have guessed. It was my idea to go as Droogs. I think it was around 2004 and I was 21, probably a sophomore in college. There were four of us. I went in character as Dim. 
we made cod pieces out of paper mache and all wore white pants and shirts with suspenders, black boots, and bowlers. I had a huge chain that they wouldn't let me bring into the bar. We drank white Russians all night to complete the effect. And she ends her note, I hope this helps. My own Halloween story is a bit different. I didn't make a cod piece, but I did have a long rubber nose mask. I didn't go out in a group, I went out solo as Alex. I remember the coolest part of my outfit was the one false eyelash. I also carried a cane, but unlike number nine, I wasn't asked to leave my stick outside the bar, which is a little weird. I guess even dressed as I was, I didn't look very threatening. Now, I know there could be plenty of reasons that we both went as droogs, but I looked for a possible psychological explanation. Psychology professor Sally Foster from the University of Maricosa in California has a widely circulated article on the internet explaining why people choose a certain Halloween costume. She says about evil costumes, quote, Evil costumes allow people to safely and even creatively express their dark side without guilt. Some people may use evil or aggressive costumes as a way, consciously or unconsciously, to alienate others, which indicate anxiety about intimacy and being vulnerable. Number nine and I would both claim we have a strong creative side. The other side of that psychobabble about alienating others wasn't in my conscious mind, and I'm sure it wasn't a factor with number nine. I remember being gratified when other Halloween revelers guessed correctly the subject of my costume. I guess I have no problem with the film because nearly every time violence is hinted at on screen, there's something that makes it unreal. The young lady struggling at the hands of Billy Boy's gang looks like a ballerina on stage. Alex does a song and dance while he defiles the innocent homeowners. The artwork on the walls of the cat lady's room creates a gallery box. When Alex attacks her with a comic sculpture, she becomes intercut with one of the paintings on the wall and vanishes. She becomes the art. If Kubrick had only done this once, it might not take away the sting of violence, but the preponderance of these cues to look away from violence and think of art reminds me I'm watching a container of art that is also art, a movie. We'll end the discussion of A Clockwork Orange there. There's plenty more to discover if you go online and look for yourself. It's an unusual film. It was rated X when it was first released in the United States, and Kubrick helped ban his own film outright in Britain after incidences of copycat violence. Now to bring this show back to wine, let's play a game called Wine Wars. Wine Wars is much like Trivial Pursuit, only with wine-only questions. And it's the perfect game for Rotcast. The questions will be random, like the show, and we hope the three questions will inform us about the world of wine enjoyment. Here's question number one. Which term describes the headspace between the wine and its container? Reserve, cuvee, or ullage? Question two. What previously little-known red grape variety has been Argentina's star in recent years? 
Question three. What tasting term is the opposite of firm and describes a wine too low in acid? And here are the answers. The answer to question number one. Which term describes the headspace between wine and its containers? The answer is ullage. Question two. What previously little-known red grape is Argentina's new star? The answer is Malbec. Question three. What tasting term is the opposite of firm? Now, the way they described this question, I would have said flat, but flat is not the opposite of the word firm, so their answer is flabby. If you guessed flabby, you win, but uh, I've never used flabby to describe uh, low acid, but maybe I will in the future. Okay, that's the first mini-show. Listen next time for episode 26, They Shoot Horses in Technicolor, don't they? Artists wear wranglers. The beret and beard help, but blue jeans are as vital as north light to this creative spirit. Jeans are standard equipment with a lot of unusual people. Wranglers are the jeans they choose. We can't promise you a one-man show at the Metropolitan, but we can give you that lean fit and sure sizing that every artist wants. Wranglers are pre-shrunk to the right size even before they're sewn together, in sizes for all the artists in your family. Wranglers, a division of Bluebell Inc.